Hello everyone, and welcome back to the History of Africa. I'm your host, Andy. So, in the last episode, we glossed over a huge section of time christened as the Oxumite Dark Age due to its lack of sources. And, in that episode, things changed a lot. The merchant class, which long dominated Aksumite society, lost almost all of its influence after a series of failed wars in the Dalek and Socotra Islands. Most of the daily governance is now done by local landowners, while the king's powers are strictly limited by the power of the church. However, after years of wallowing in the obscurity of a dark age, we have finally returned to a point where we have history again. Sort of. Yes, the time of reliable monastic records and inscriptions is still over. Instead, from here on out, our primary source of information is oral tradition and foreign accounts, and sometimes even later secondhand account of pre-existing oral histories. Now, this isn't perfect, but I'll talk about why, later in this episode, that we can rely on these sources with a fair degree of certainty. Episode 27, Degnachun, the last great king of Oxum. By the end of the 9th century, Oxum was still undergoing its long and steady decline. Oxumite prospects in its coastal territories, along the regions of modern-day Eritrea and Djibouti, were looking grim. Twenty years earlier, an attempt by the Oxumite merchants to reinsert themselves into the politics of the Indian Ocean had failed catastrophically. Within a few years of seizing the island of Socotra, the Oxumites were defeated by a sizable Omani fleet. Between this defeat and the earlier loss of the Dalek Islands, it was clear that Oxumite ambitions could no longer lie on the Red Sea. It seems like the Oxumite elites understood this dilemma. When a marauding army of Beja nomads invaded the Oxumite northern coast, the government sent no counterattack. The territories, long some of the most valuable in the empire due to their importance in the Indian Ocean trade, fell without a fight. With the surrender of the northern coast, the transition of Oxum from the coastal trading empire of antiquity into an inland agrarian state, a process which has dominated our last several episodes of the show, is now finally complete. And, in the waning years of the 9th century, enters our titular character for this episode, Negus Degnajun. In fact, maybe character is the most appropriate term to describe Degnajun, as the paltry number of reliable sources regarding his rule actually leads some historians to question his existence at all. These historians, though, are relatively fringe, and most believe that he was a real historical figure, but one whose true legacy is heavily cloaked in myth and legend. A personal pet theory of mine, so take that as you will, is that the figure of Degnajan was a real guy, but that most of his biography isn't necessarily referring to himself. Rather, I have a sneaking suspicion that Degnajan is something of a composite king. As we'll see throughout the episode, Degnajan will achieve a whole lot on his time on the throne, to the point that it's kind of unrealistic that one guy achieved all of the stuff that he's attributed to. So, I believe that Degnajan is kind of a personification of all the deeds done by various Oxumite kings at the turn of the 9th century. The only somewhat reliable source on Degnajan's life comes from the writing of Tekle Hayamanot, an Ethiopian priest and historian, but even these writings arose about three centuries after the end of Degnajan's reign and after the end of the Oxumite Empire. In this episode, I roll with the most widespread belief that Degnajan was one person and that he lived and ruled in the late 9th and early 10th centuries. But again, this is far from a consensus, and even I have some questions about this. In fact, many historians believe that Degnajan ruled several decades earlier than I claim here, while others claim he ruled several decades after I assume in this episode. And, yeah, they might be right. We can't really say for sure. So, from now on, if you hear me give mention of any dates in this episode, just always imagine that I end that sentence with, give or take 50 years or so. 
It sucks, but this is what happens when you have no reliable literary sources from the time period and you rely on sometimes contradictory oral histories. Now, with that whole spiel about historiography done with, can we actually talk about Degnagen? Well, yes. Sort of. So normally, when I open a discussion about an important figure in Aksumite history, I like to begin with their childhood, because it's just such a formative period. Whether it's the young Nizana being looked after by his mother and Frumentius, or Caleb studying hard to become a monk only to have the crown foisted upon him. I think that introducing a historical figure with a story from their childhood is a great way to humanize them and make them kind of relatable. See, I doubt that you, the person listening, has ever been the first monarch of your empire to convert to Christianity. I know I haven't. But there's a reasonable chance that at least some of you can relate to, I don't know, growing up in a single-parent household. I bet you've never ordered an invasion of Yemen, but maybe you can relate to having a dream career that gets taken away from you due to society and your family's expectations. However, despite Degnajan eventually going down in history as the most influential king of late Aksum, we simply can't do that with him. We don't know anything about his childhood. Heck, we don't even really know the name of his father, or how he got to the throne in the first place. Whether or not he was the son of the previous Aksumite king, or just a noble who inserted himself into the throne, is kind of questionable. Despite his importance, he's sort of an enigma. Rather, the first accounts we have of Degnajan begin in medius res, or right into the action. We first meet Degnajan in the historical record when he's already the king of Aksum, and in fact leading an army of missionaries on the southern frontier. This frontier region was populated by the ancestors of the modern Amhara ethnic group. The Amhara had long been subjects of Aksum, but only really in a marginal sense. Much like the Aga, who we met in the last episode, the proto-Amharas had been conquered by the Aksumite king Gadarat in the 3rd century. However, while they were now under Aksumite sovereignty, most of the real power of governance in the Amhara region remained with the Amhara landowners, and they're better described as maybe something like tributary clients and as an integral part of the Aksumite empire. The people here did not pay taxes directly to the Aksumite government, but instead paid them to their local king or village council, who would then hand a portion of those original taxes to the Aksumite king as tribute. If it weren't for the occasional Aksumite tribute collector who showed up once in a blue moon, you'd probably not even realize that you were technically in the Aksumite Empire. Due to the informality of Aksumite rule in the region, many of the political and religious transformations that we've heard about in Aksum had never taken place in the villages of the Amhara. While most of the Amhara had converted to Christianity, many still practiced aspects of their traditional faith as well. You may remember the religious reforms of Mehadias back in the 4th century, when he purged the last vestiges of Aksumite paganism from the empire? Well, those religious reforms might as well have not happened to the empire's Amhara subjects. While most of the Amhara had eventually converted to Christianity, many elements of the region's pre-Christian traditional faith still permeated worship. The powerful kings of Aksum throughout this era, who were for the most part more concerned with matters of state and economy than converting towns and city-states on the southern frontier, didn't really care about what happened down there. As long as they got their tribute payments, they were happy, regardless of what faith the tributary believed in. However, by the rule of Degnajan, those powerful Aksumite kings were a thing of the past. No longer was the Negus an unquestioned autocrat, but was merely another factor of an increasingly complex Aksumite state apparatus. If an Aksumite Negus wanted to get something done in the 9th century, he had to rely on the support of others, namely the church and the nobility. To raise any type of army, he needed the feudal landowners to commit their own personal armies to his banner. 
and to administer the state and collect taxes, he increasingly relied on the church. While the Oxmite kings of old didn't particularly care whether their tribute payments came from true believers or ghastly heathens, the church certainly did. However, while this expedition was ostensibly about the righteous cause of spreading the Christian faith and winning the support of the church, the reality of the motivations of this expedition were far more secular the deeper you look at them. You see, while the details and exact motivations are unclear, we'll see throughout Degnajan's reign that he had a clear agenda of trying to restore royal power. And, of course, the first step in doing that was to break the ever-growing power of the Oxumite church. With most of the church elites now busy on the Amhara frontier, the imperial capital, Kubar, was conspicuously empty of priests and monks. Degnajan could now start his agenda of strengthening his power with no meddling church officials to get in his way. Away from the prying eyes of the church, Degnajan sent a messenger to the Coptic Church of Alexandria. Upon arriving in Egypt, the Oxmite messenger must have come as a surprise to the bishops he met. Remember, for the last several decades, communications between the Oxmite and Alexandrian churches had essentially ceased. The regular tradition of the Alexandrian patriarch appointing the head of the Oxumite church had been shrugged off in favor of delivering more power to the ambitious priests of Oxum. So, when this messenger from the south requested that the patriarch appoint a new abuna, this must have come as a pleasant shock to the Copts. Granting this request, the patriarch decided that a priest named Peter would accompany the messenger on his return trip to Ethiopia. The appointment of Peter as abuna is actually one of the few reliable details we have about Degnajan's reign as its historicity is confirmed by the contemporary Coptic records. Once he arrived in the Oxumite capital city of Kubar, Degnajan welcomed Peter to serve as the new head of the Oxumite church. Now, obviously this decision did not go over well with the Oxumite church elites when they eventually found out. The priests and monks of Oxum, who had become incredibly powerful and influential in their own right, were perfectly happy without some Egyptian appointee looking over their shoulder, constantly making sure they were playing by the church's rules. So we siphon a little bit of tax revenue sometimes, big whoop. But most of them were far away, on the Amhara frontier, helpless to contest the enshrinement of Peter as the new church father. Peter, though, as a foreigner, was completely helpless on his own. He barely spoke Gaez, had little knowledge of local politics, and had no allies within Oxumite society. Well, that is to say, no allies except for one. Completely dependent on the king to preserve his position, Peter proved to be an effective puppet for the Negus, essentially granting Degnajan complete control over church functions. No longer would the king of Oxum have to make deals with the church to collect taxes or conduct bureaucracy. He could just do it unilaterally, entirely of his own accord, by giving orders to the Abuna. The fragile balance of power between the church, king, and landowning nobility was also broken. While the landowners of Oxum had been perfectly capable of standing up to the king when the church was an indifferent or neutral force, this was no longer the case. Sure, the nobility could stand their ground and push for increased autonomy when the only threat against them was angering the relatively weak king, but now that the church was under the king's control, excommunication was a weapon in Degnajan's belt. If a local noble got a little too uppity or sent only a fraction of the requested forces to an army, the king could send Peter to tell the noble to kneel before the king or face expulsion from the church. And, of course, that implied eternal damnation to the pits of hell. So, through one extremely clever political maneuver, Negus Degnajan had not only reasserted his control over the church, but also over the local nobility. With the Oxumite state apparatus now firmly in his grip, Degnajan could finally begin the real goal of his reign 
the consolidation and expansion of the Aksumite Empire. We'll be back after a quick break. How are University of Notre Dame faculty and students working to be a force for good in the world? Listen to Notre Dame stories to find out. Through expert interviews and captivating stories, listeners gain an inside perspective on the global and domestic challenges the university is working to solve. Subscribe to Notre Dame Stories wherever you get your podcasts. With the loyalty of the nobility now guaranteed, Degnajan ordered that they raised him an army, a promise on which they exceeded expectations. The army raised by Degnajan was the largest Oxum had ever seen since its glory days under Caleb. According to one account of his expedition, Degnajan's army comprised more than 180,000 men, though this is almost certainly an exaggeration given the population of the Ethiopian highlands at the time. And with this massive army under his command, Degnajan marched into the Amhara region. There he proclaimed that no longer would the Amhara continue existing as semi-independent tributaries to Aksum, but they were now direct subjects of the empire. No longer would Amhara elites pay the occasional tribute payment, but they would now pay taxes directly, like any other nobleman within the Aksumite realm. Not to mention, they would have to contribute their feudal subjects to the Aksumite army as conscripts. The Amhara feudal elites, staring down Degnajan's massive army, didn't really have much choice in this matter. So, between the efforts of his missionaries and the direct annexation of the region, Degnajan transformed the Amhara from a frontier people, only nominally under Aksumite influence, into integral subjects of the empire. However, Degnajan's expansionist ambitions did not stop at the integration of an already subjugated people. Rather, he sought to actually expand the Oxumite sphere of influence further southwards than it had ever been before. Now, this is kind of unusual. Throughout Oxumite history, the Empire's expansionist ambitions have generally been limited to two areas, Nubia to Oxum's east and Yemen to the north. Really, since the reign of Gadarat, the kings of Aksum had essentially neglected the Aksumite frontier to the south. This area was protected from Aksumite influence by the Semian Mountains, the highest peaks of the Ethiopian highlands. If an Aksumite king wanted to expand south, he would have to make the risky decision of marching his army through the treacherous, snow-capped peaks of the Semians. If you'll remember back to episode 15, even Gadarat struggled to make any significant headway into the Semian mountain range, and was forced to settle for tributary payments instead of direct annexation for the people living there. Then, if an Aksumite king did manage to pass his army through the mountains, the land on the other side was populated primarily by scattered villages and city-states, of little value to the urban and trade-reliant Aksumite economy. Now, compare this to the potentially huge benefits reaped by a successful campaign in Nubia or Yemen. Izana's conquest of Nubia allowed Aksumite merchants to make full use of the Nile on trade missions to Egypt, and began lucrative tribute payments from the populous urban centers of the Upper Nile. It also gave the Aksumites Nubian land, which they used as a bargaining chip with the Beja nomads to their north. Caleb's conquest of Yemen, on the other hand, gave Aksumite merchants a monopoly on the lucrative incense trade, and essentially delivered the Aksumite king the ability to tax any and all trade that passed through the Red Sea. So, between those options and marching through snowy mountains to conquer some small villages, I know which option I'd choose. But, as we've grown more than familiar with, a lot has changed in the last 400 years. The decline of the Aksumite merchant class meant that most of the value found in a conquest of Yemen is irrelevant to the Aksumites. 
Nubia, on the other hand, is dominated by the kingdom of Elodia, a Christian Oxumite ally and a future podcast season waiting to be made. Elodia was experiencing something of a golden age during this era, and was at the height of its power, so even if Degnajan wanted to expand into Nubia, it's not clear if he could have won a fight against the powerful Elodian state. And, while the usual avenues of Oxumite expansion were closing, the south was a region of increasing economic interest. The regions to the southeast of the Oxumite frontier were primarily inhabited by the Sidama and Harla, ethnic groups who spoke Cushitic languages, and then the land further to the southwest was occupied by a series of different Amotic-speaking peoples. And, it's worth pointing out that these people practiced a culture that would seem entirely alien to the Oxumites. While the Oxumites spoke Gaez, a Semitic language, the people of southern Ethiopia did not. While Oxumites lived primarily in large, square dwellings, southern Ethiopians lived primarily in round, often temporary dwellings called Tukul. And, in terms of religion, while Oxum had now embraced Christianity almost six centuries ago, the southern Ethiopians had continually practiced the same local faiths for a millennia. While these regions were still primarily rural and ruled by small local towns and villages, some of the larger villages had recently begun a period of rapid growth. Villages near the modern sites of Fofa and Sodo grew from small hamlets into increasingly large urban centers. However, by far the largest of these rapidly growing towns was Bonga, located in the Kefa zone of southern Ethiopia today. Until recently, the regions surrounding the town of Bonga were divided among the estates of several small Amotic-speaking clans. However, sometime likely not long before Degnajun's reign started, one of these clans, known as the Mato, emerged as the most powerful. The Mato extracted tribute from their neighbors, and created basically the first true empire in the history of southern Ethiopia. The town of Bonga will, in fact, go on to become the capital of the kingdom of Kaffa, a later dynasty which will last from the Middle Ages all the way until the late 19th century. If you'd like to learn more about the kingdom of Kaffa that arose in this region of southern Ethiopia, you can listen to the newest premium episode which focuses on them, available for those who support the show on Patreon. Not only do your donations allot you access to these premium episodes of the show, but they also serve as the driving engine that keeps the show running. While I love making these podcasts, it is the support of our patrons on Patreon that makes sure that this show doesn't fall victim to my increasingly busy schedule. And, to those already supporting the show on Patreon, a hearty thank you. So, as the southern region of Ethiopia became increasingly economically valuable in the early 10th century, suddenly the prospect of Oxumite expansion in the region didn't seem like such a waste of resources. Not to mention, the south was also the region of Ethiopia with the most plentiful gold deposits, so control over the gold mines of southern Ethiopia was certainly an enticing prize. Remember, ever since they'd been kicked out of the coast, Oxum didn't really have that many enticing exports to sell on the global market. Maybe the conquest of the south could turn them into a gold-exporting powerhouse. Seeking to expand Oxumite frontiers into this newly valuable region, Degnajun ordered his army to cross the mountains into the south. And, the Oxumite army proved incredibly effective in these campaigns, seemingly unstoppable in its penetration deep into the southern countryside. However, no matter how many successes he produced on the battlefield, Degnajun soon ran into the same problem faced by Gadarat hundreds of years prior. Running supplies through the mountainous terrain of the region is a nearly impossible task, so Degnajun's armies were forced to essentially live entirely off of the land. However, constantly raiding food stores of the people you're trying to turn into loyal subjects is a good way to breed resentment. The further Degnajan marched south, the more it became apparent that he could not afford to feed his massive army forever. Much like his ancient predecessor, 
Degnatron recognized that this task would be harder than he initially thought. Rather than trying to incorporate this hostile region into his empire, Degnatron recognized his limits. He agreed to a hasty peace with the locals, proclaiming that they would pay him an annual tribute before heading back across the Semians to Kubar. However, just disbanding the army after such an anticlimactic conquest would be a waste. So, Degnajan took the remains of his army and pressed east. There, he attacked and besieged the city of Zela, still under the rule of a powerful deer clan of Somalis, and convinced them, too, to become Oxmite tributaries, at the point of a sword. With Zela now under his influence, the Oxmite army then wheeled around and pushed the Beja invaders out of the northern coastal region. Finally, after decades of unrelenting military success, Degnajan returned to his old seat of power in Kubar, where, after a few more years of peaceful reign, he began to wither into old age. So, wow, talk about a comeback. Degnajan, or as I believe the multiple kings he acts as a composite of, has seemingly completely reversed Oxum's fortunes. He inherited an Oxumite state whose politics were dominated by the squabbles of aristocrats and clergy, was economically failing, and retreating on all frontiers. He molded this into a rejuvenated militaristic empire, placed it once again under the autocratic rule of the Negusa Nagast through clever political maneuvering, and returned Oxum to its status as hegemon of the Ethiopian highlands. Impressive, right? So, what happens after all that? It seems like Oxumite fortunes are finally on the rise again. This probably means we'll see a whole Oxumite resurgence in the following generations, and Oxum will return to its status as a great power, relegating the previous centuries of decline to a brief, though sour note in Oxumite history, and I get to make 15 more episodes about Oxum, right? Well, actually, no. This might surprise you, but Degnajan will go down in history as the second-to-last king of Oxum. Now, what? After this ridiculously successful reign, the guy after Degnajan will be the very last Negus of Oxum? What could possibly be the cause of that kind of ridiculous twist of events? Well, this flowery language that I've used to describe Degnajan's rule might be actually a little bit overstated. Degnajan will go on to struggle with something that many great leaders throughout history have struggled with before and since. For all of his successes, Degnajan struggled to assertively pick an heir. Additionally, while his military campaigns and recentralization of the state were impressive, they were fragile. They clearly relied on the notion that whichever leader came next would possess equally strong skills in politics and ensure that the nobility didn't immediately resurge to retake control of the government. Not to mention, all of these wars which Degnajan waged had made Oxum a lot of enemies on its frontiers. Not only will the Oxumite Empire fall, but much of its history and culture will be erased with it by the coming catastrophe. Join us for our next episode, where we begin a three-part series of Oxum's Imperial Unraveling starting with the squabbles between Degnajan's son and the frankly quite wacky schemes of some ambitious Oxmite priests. Thank you for listening to the History of Africa podcast. If you like the show and the free education we provide, then I'd encourage you to support the show. This can be done by a monetary donation to our Patreon, which can be found on our website, historyofafricapodcast.blogspot.com. By giving the show a review on iTunes, or by sharing the podcast to anyone who you think might be interested. This episode, like all others, is brought to you by our patrons. Raul Kanakia, Ayo Fagbamie, Aaron L., and Kevin Johnson, among others. Thank you for helping to make the show happen.